Please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke 14. Title of the sermon, Counting the Cost. Last week we were in Luke 14, verses 1 through 24. Being bidden, right? We saw several parables about meals. First, Jesus was talking to those who were bidden to the feast, encouraging them that they would not take the uppermost uh, positions, that they would not seek to claim the highest position or the highest honor. Then he spoke to the man who bid them, encouraging the man who bid them to not uh, invite those who were able to recompense him, but rather to invite those who had no capacity to recompense. And then he spoke after a man said, blessed are they that shall eat in the kingdom of God. Jesus gave that parable about eating and the wedding feast and the man who invited his friends and they all had excuses. And so he went out to the highways and the byways and into the city to get everyone he could. And those who were invited would no longer be allowed to partake in his feast. And through this, we learned what what we consider timeless lessons, some important, more generalized truths. Certainly, we understood that the focus uh, of that was accepting that, especially that last one was accepting that invitation right to the feast. And yet we recognize concepts of humility. We recognize concepts of, of giving without expectation of recompense, of yielding, submitting to the Lord. Well, this evening, we are going to take one step farther. We, we have talked about humility and submission unto receiving, uh, joining the feast. Now we're going to talk about discipleship and counting the cost. For indeed, if we are to follow Christ, if we are to do everything that Christ has uh, uh, called us to do, if we are to be a true follower, not, not a believer, but a true follower, a true disciple, there's going to be a true cost. We pick up in verse 25 this evening. And the Bible tells us this, there went out a great mul- and there went a great multitude with him. And he turned and said unto them, Jesus is speaking here to great multitudes. Remember, we've been going back and forth, uh, right? But between the audiences that Jesus has been speaking to, there were times where he's speaking to his disciples, then to the Pharisees and Sadducees, then he turned to the crowds, then he turned back to the Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, now he's speaking to uh, the great multitudes that have been following him. Variously, as Jesus has spoken to each group, uh, it helps us understand exactly what he's saying by who he's speaking to and what he's speaking about. So Jesus says to them in verse 26, If any man come to me and hate not his father and his mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. That word disciple being learner, pupil, We're speaking about discipleship here. That word meaning, as I mentioned, learner, pupil, it's a word that implies a method of sanctification and of following the Lord. Jesus is speaking in the context of those who would desire to be truly used by him, who would desire to truly know him, who would desire to truly pursue the knowledge of the holy. And Jesus says that this endeavor comes at a cost. This endeavor comes at a cost. 
And at this time, I'd like for us to remember, and I spoke about it when we were there several, a couple of months ago now, I'd like us to remember the words of Jesus in Luke 9 so that we can compare and contrast them. Back in Luke 9, beginning in verse 18, Jesus said, that, or the, the text says this, and it came to pass, as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him. So this would be a more intimate time, right? Here uh, in Luke uh, 14, Jesus is speaking with the great multitudes. But in Luke 9, Jesus is speaking only with those, uh, his intimate disciples, his 12. And he asked them saying, whom say the people that I am? They answering said, John the Baptist, but some say Elias and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. So remember the context here. Um, Herod, we, we had just read about Herod having beheaded John the Baptist and being interested in Jesus. And, and we, we did that study and saw that Herod asked his people, who is this Jesus? And, they, and many said, well, some believe it's John the Baptist risen from the dead. Others think it's some other old prophet risen from the dead. They all believed he was a good prophet, right? But the problem was Jesus is not just a good prophet. Jesus is Messiah. And there's a major difference between Jesus being a good prophet and Jesus being Messiah. So this is why Jesus is asking this question. Because there are plenty of people all over the place that are saying Jesus is a good prophet. Jesus is a good teacher. Jesus is someone special. But they are coming short of saying Jesus is who he says he is. And so Jesus asked this question. And then he asks them next. But whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, the Christ of God, and he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the priests and the scribes, excuse me, and chief priests and the scribes, and be slain and be raised the third day. And he said unto them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose it will lose his life for my sake. The same shall save it. For what is it a man, for what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the son of man be ashamed when he shall come into his own glory and in his fathers and of the holy angels. But I tell you of a truth. There shall be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. So Jesus says a very similar thing in Luke 9 to what we are going to be reading in Luke 14. But the context is actually very, very different. Jesus is speaking in Luke 14 to a to the great multitudes in Luke 9. He's speaking directly to his inner disciples. But what is more important than that is the context with which Jesus is speaking. In Luke 9, when we were there, we recognized that because the entire chapter of Luke 9 is about Jesus' identity, is about whether he is just a good prophet, whether he is just a good man, or whether he is the Christ of God, we identified the Luke 9 teaching here about counting the cost, about denying yourself, about taking up the cross daily and following him to be a salvation message to be a there are people in and there are people out and the dividing line between those that are in and those that are out is who you say i am am i just a good man who said some things which you could take or leave or am i the christ of god whose words are the words of god and whose words must be obeyed whose words must be received do we accept christ on his terms or do we reject Christ? And obviously that brings about the gospel and accepting the gospel. If a man accepts Jesus for who he is, if he accepts the name of Christ, then he accepts the gospel of Christ. 
then he accepts the authority of Christ. Jesus speaks to these disciples, having accepted the gospel, but teaching them about that line between those who believe and those who don't by accepting or rejecting Jesus' true identity. And I mentioned to you at that time that I believe that this Luke 14 context is not speaking of salvation explicitly, but is speaking of discipleship. And that is still going to be the context within which I teach this Luke 14 passage. I believe it is talking about discipleship. Now, you can certainly feel free to disagree with me here. These two passages are very similar. One could argue that they're saying the same thing. One could argue that uh, there's, there's a, a, a salvation emphasis and a discipleship emphasis in both of them. One could argue for just salvation in both or just discipleship in both. But I believe that as we walk through it, um, it, it will become at least uh, um, reasonable to you to think that Luke 9, speaking of identity, therefore speaking of salvation, Luke 14, speaking of cost, and speaking of dedication, and thus discipleship. So in our context, Jesus speaks of those who are bidden to a feast, some rejected, so, so the man who put on the feast invites everyone and anyone that will come from the highways and the byways to come to the feast and to eat that feast. We understand that to be a parable reflecting the kingdom of God, that those who eat in the kingdom of God are not going to be those who just happen to know the, the, the person who's putting on the feast or like the person that's putting on the feast, but those who actually accept the invitation and come to the feast. That's where we pick up in our context this evening. And he says, if any man come to me and hate not his father and his mother and his wife and children and brethren and sister, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So what does it mean to be a disciple? Jesus tells us here that to be a disciple means to place Christ above any other and every other priority in one's life. That's what it means here, to hate. The word hate in our New Testament does not necessarily mean to detest. It is not necessarily an emotionally negative response to something. If we talk about something that we hate today, the idea that I hate something generally means that I have a loathing for it. I, I greatly dislike it. That I have an emotionally negative response to it. Um, whether that be certain food groups that you might say, oh boy, I hate that food. Or whether it might be a certain situation where you say, man, I hate it when that happens. Or whether it might be uh, uh, whatever, uh, a particular um, um, political leaning or whatever it might be. You can say, I hate that, that when you hear that or when, when you, you come across that, it wells up within you a negative emotional response. But in the New Testament, the concept of hatred, while it can mean that, more generally means to place lower in value or to place lower in favor. It, it is a contrasting term. So when we read in Romans, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated... The Bible is not saying that God literally and specifically loathed Esau, but rather that he had placed Jacob higher and Esau lower in favor. So he hated Esau. The idea of hatred is to place lower. So when Jesus says that if any man would come after me, he has to hate his family. 
He has to hate his mom and his wife and his children and his brethren and his sisters. Jesus is not saying that you need to have an emotionally negative response to your family, that you need to detest them in some way. Rather, Jesus is saying that your love and your loyalty to your family, yea, to your own life also, needs to be overshadowed by your love for Jesus Christ. That Jesus needs to be placed on the top of the heap. If you want to come after him, if you want to be his disciple, then Jesus needs to be placed at the top and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters. Yea, thy own life also needs to be brought under subjection, subservient to your loyalty to Christ. And this is the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. The Christian life is not a game. The cost of discipleship is the real deal. And your decision with relation to Christ's claims upon your life has eternal weight and eternal consequences. So Jesus is saying, look, if you truly want to be a disciple of me, then I need to be number one in your life. Then my priorities need to become your, your highest priorities, even at the cost of the physical relationships, of the physical things in this world. To this end, Jesus says that the pursuit of Christ ought to demand every last bit of your loyalty and effort, saying in verse 27, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If you do not hate, place lower in favor, place lower in value, place lower in priority the the physical things of this life, And if you don't take up that cross and then bear that cross and come after me, you cannot be my disciple. Take careful note of the contrast between Luke 14.27 and Luke 9.23 in regard to this cross idea. In Luke 9.23, Jesus said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In Luke 14.27, Jesus says, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Again, I would like to uh, suggest to you that there is a difference between the way that these two are expressed and that the way these two are expressed is, is showing two different ideas. The idea of taking up the cross daily and the idea of bearing the cross are two different concepts. To take up the cross daily is the idea that every day I am going to bear the mantle of Christ. A person who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior bears the mantle of Christ. In other words, the whole point of physical baptism after salvation is a public testimony of your faith in Jesus Christ, right? It is you publicly declaring that I am in, that I am associating with Jesus Christ, that I am not ashamed of Jesus Christ, that I identify with Jesus Jesus Christ. That is the idea that I believe is is being expressed there by taking up one's cross daily and following. It is not necessarily always bearing the cross, the idea that I am always going to to, to bear the, 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 the brunt of the burden of what Jesus Christ has called us to do. That's a sanctification element. In other words, that this concept of carrying the cross even unto death, the concept of of uh, placing God as the highest priority, that's something that we have to learn to do as disciples of Christ. That's something that we have to determine to do. But the taking up of the cross, the bearing the mantle, the raising the standard, the saying, I am Christ's, that Jesus Christ is Savior, that's a daily 
moment by moment, Jesus Christ is my Savior element that will be found among those who have accepted Christ as their Savior. Jesus says, however, that in this passage that we are to bear His cross and come after Him, to follow in His footsteps, to walk as Jesus walked. Jesus will bear the cross even unto death. And Christ says, if you want to be my disciple, so too will you. And he relates this spiritual concept to the physical world around them with a couple of very practical questions. In verses 28 and 30, we read the first one. Jesus asks this, For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it, lest haply after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, but was not able to finish. Jesus first asks about a man who might intend to build a tower. This man might uh, be likened, say, to the, the tower of the, the, the builders of the Tower of Siloam. We considered at the beginning of Luke 13 that the Tower of Siloam, remember, had fallen over and 18 people had died, and Jesus used that as, as a, a illustration. So perhaps here Jesus is looking at a tower. Maybe they're back around Jerusalem and they're looking at the Tower of Siloam as it's being rebuilt after having fallen down. And he points to it and he says, who builds a tower without first counting the cost? Uh, it could also be a tower. Many people put towers on the corner of their vineyard to have some means of, of overlooking the vineyard, watching over the vineyard. Uh, the idea of building a tower one way or another would be very relatable to everybody who was listening but not only was it very relatable, it was a project that had considerable cost. You didn't just say, well, I'm going to build a tower today and pull out whatever changes in your pocket, slap it down and build a tower, right? To build something uh, that, that would take time, that would take effort, that would take an amount of materials. This was, this was a legitimate cost. And this is reflected in the word that Jesus uses here for cost. It's a word used only this one time in the New Testament, and it means to consume or to devour. This is not just an expense, but it's an expense that would uh, quite literally devour up one's resources. And Jesus says, what man, when he's planning to build a tower, does not first consider how much the tower will devour his resources? Who will not first consider and then determine whether he has sufficient when he begins the project to finish the project? And a man does this because if he doesn't, and it turns out that he doesn't have enough money to finish the project, then that tower is going to be unused. It's going to be half done, and his investment into the project will have been pretty much for nothing. And then everyone around him will have seen that he ran out of money before he could finish the project. This will be at best embarrassing because it shows that he did not plan well, that he was short-sighted and impulsive, and lacked the experience necessary to finish the job that he committed to. Jesus then gives a second illustration, and he asks this, Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he shall be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage, and is an embassage, excuse me, uh, all pronounce that word properly, and desireth conditions of peace. He says, what king goes to war without first determining whether it's possible to win it? 
If a king has 10,000 men, then he better quite carefully consider whether or not he can fight against 20,000 men, right? And if he knows that there's no chance, it is no credit to him to go out to battle and to, to waste those 10,000 lives and then to lose the battle and to lose the, the power or perhaps over his kingdom or to lose whatever it might be simply because he wants to. Much rather, the wise king saying, I've only got 10,000 men. This kingdom has 20,000 men. I don't see a path to victory here. I don't see a reasonable chance for the sake of my people, for the sake of my kingdom, for the sake of those that I would send out to fight this battle. I am going to instead send an ambassador to discuss terms of peace rather than have all these people killed. Now, these two illustrations are not by any means inaccessible. They are quite accessible, I would believe, to even uh, to, to even the youngest in this room. That that it is very that they're very clear illustrations. They're very simple to understand. As soon as you understand the value of a life, or as soon as you understand the value of money, these illustrations can become quite accessible to us. They're not even really controversial. We might even file them under common sense. We need to count the cost before we commit to things and make sure we can accomplish them. And Jesus links these illustrations to his teaching about discipleship. In verse 33, he says this, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus says in the same manner that you need to recognize the cost of building a tower and that it would not be wise to begin the process of building it if you can't finish the process of building it in the same manner that a king needs to count the cost of a battle and that he should not send his men into battle if he cannot win the battle. Jesus says you should count the cost, understand what I am asking of you, understand what being my disciple means, before you head down that road. Are you willing to do what Jesus asks of you? Really willing? Have you stopped to think whether or not your will is truly aligned? Now, as we think of the illustration... And as we think of Jesus' words here, there's one place where his illustration breaks down. The point gets across, that's all he needed to do. But the fact is, when the man is building the tower, he's counting the cost. And he's saying, well, do I have enough money to finish it? Do I have the resources necessary to finish the job? With the king who's sending out to war, he's asking, do I have the resources necessary to at least have the possibility of winning this war, winning this battle? Now, where this illustration breaks down is this. Nobody has the resources necessary to follow Christ, right? Nobody has the resources necessary to follow Christ. Jesus' point was not, do you have enough money? Do you have enough men? Do you have enough resources at your own disposal to be of use to Christ? Indeed, throughout the New Testament, 
it is made clear that you and I don't have what it takes on our own to please and serve the Lord. First Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, I've used this several times in the last several weeks, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Paul says it is only by God's grace that I am what I am, and as I see what, that I am what I am, I determine in my will to labor more abundantly than they all. I determine to give my all, but then as I give my all, I recognize that without God's grace, I don't even have the means by which to take what I can give and, and, and place it before the Lord. And this is the point, uh, that, that it is not so much when Jesus is calling these men to be his disciples, it is not that he's asking each one of us to assess our talents and our abilities and our, our resources and, uh, and uh, all, all of those externalities and say, well, do I have what it takes to really be worth something to the Lord? Do I have what it takes to be useful to the Lord? Some of you may be sitting here today as a member of this church or, or, or as one who wants to serve this church and say, well, I don't have a lot to give to this church. Uh, maybe you don't have a lot of musical talent and you say, well, I can't really serve the church in that way. Maybe you're not very comfortable in a speaking or a teaching role. You don't have a, a, a talent as a teacher and you can't really serve in that capacity. And, and you say, well, I, I've, I've assessed my talents and I, I'm not usable. Therefore, I cannot be Christ's disciple. That's not it. That's not it. See, the thing about being Christ's disciple is that he's not asking you to have unusual talents and abilities. He's asking you to have unusual submission. He's asking you to be unusually willing. It's not about whether you're able. It's about whether you're willing. God can do the able part. But what he needs of us is the willing part. So when he's calling for us to count the cost, he's not calling for us to count our abilities and our resources. He's calling for us to account for our will. Have you counted the cost of placing mother or father and sister and brother lower than me? What might that cost you? When you willingly yield those things to, to follow me. What is the cost of discipleship? The cost is not implicitly any sort of resource except this. Whatever God asks of you. That means you might lose that relationship with that family member for Christ. That means you might be asked to yield some of those priorities that you had in place before. That means you might be called upon to change your job, to change your lifestyle in order to follow Christ. Have you counted that cost? Are you willing to hate all of those elements of your life, to place them lower in priority and in favor in order to follow wherever Christ would have you to go, to do what he's called you to do? The great prophet Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah 40, verse 31. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God doesn't ask you to be the strongest, the fastest, the most intelligent, the most articulate. He wants you to be willing and yielded. And then to let him do the rest. So what is the cost? The cost is the things of this life. Maybe you have dreams 
I'm going to get this kind of a job. I'm going to make this kind of money. Or I'm going to have these, this kind of a family. I'm going to have these children. Or whatever it might be. And it's fine to have dreams. But if those dreams usurp your loyalty to Christ, where when Christ says you need to come with me this way, you say, but Christ, my life is that way. That's where the problem comes in. Have you counted the cost? So that when you say, I am ready to be Christ's disciple, I want to follow him. There's nothing else in your life. There's no material possession. There's no relationship. There's no location that has higher priority than Christ. That's what it means to hate them. So much so that Christ says, and hate your own life also. God, everything about my life and my priorities I place underneath yours. And so Jesus said, Verse 33, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Now, that does not mean that Christ is going to take it all just because you yield it all, right? But what if he does? Have you counted the cost? Are you willing to yield it all if Christ asks for it all? Is it all on the table? Is your family on the table? Are your relationships on the table? Parents, one of the things that I hope you do with your children is you commit them to the Lord. I hope that regularly you remind yourself before the Lord that they're God's children that he's lending to you so that if God were, God forbid, to take one of our children... we would have Jesus Christ as a higher priority and favor and say, Lord, you gave and you've taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I hope it's the same for your job and your lifestyle and your health and every relationship in your life so that if your need to follow Christ or something about your life in Christ asks you to yield any material possession, any physical circumstance, you'll do it. That's what it means to place Christ as the highest, to put everything else lower, to hate everything else. So Jesus is asking, have you stopped to consider whether or not you're really willing to give your loyalty to the things of this world in order to serve Christ? And this is the grand question. Are you willing to place Jesus Christ and his will above your fleshly desires, your desire for things, your loyalty to family, the love for where you live, the love for your lifestyle? Let me ask the question in another way. Is there anything in your life, the way you live, where you live, who you love, what you watch, what you listen to, what you have, is there anything in your life which you would not be willing to give up if Christ asked? That's the question. That's what it means to count the cost. That's what Jesus is calling his listeners to do on that day. Count the cost. Jesus says the true disciple, the one who is truly following him, is the one who has counted the cost and who says, yes, it's all on the table. I'm going to bear 
my cross and follow you. But what if you say, no, I'm not really willing to do that. I have a life which I want to pursue. I have my own priorities. I have my own love. I have my own desires. I love my family too much. I love my things too much. I love my lifestyle too much. Well, Jesus speaks to that in verses 34 and 35. Notice what he says. He says, salt is good. But if the salt lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. In one sense, this is somewhat startling to find this illustration at this point in Luke. When we read it in Matthew, it's part of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus is teaching his disciples, and one of the things he teaches them is this very concept. The salt that can lose its savor. But this is one of the reasons why I believe Luke 14 is speaking of discipleship and not of salvation. Because we see him use this very same analogy to salt losing its savor. The idea of salt, when Jesus uses it, he says, ye are the salt of the earth, right? Who's he speaking to when he says, ye are the salt of the earth? He's not speaking to to anyone. He's speaking to those who have already accepted his identity and who now he's calling to follow him. And here he uses the same example. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? He's using this illustration, whether it's the same instance that's just found in a different point because Luke is more chronological and Matthew is more themed, or whether it's a different instance where Jesus is using the same illustration, it lends itself to the idea that Jesus is speaking to those who have already accepted his identity and now he's calling them to take the next step. And he says, salt is good. You know, salt does many things. But Jesus is only focused on one thing here. Salt is good for for several uses in our world. But Jesus is not considering salt as a preserving agent, nor does he in Matthew, by the way. He doesn't say so, at least. He's not considering salt as a cleansing agent. You know, when you hear that this passage preached about salt, people will will talk about all the different instances of where salt is used. It's a preserving agent. It's a cleansing agent. And all of those are true. And, And Jesus might be painting that analogy. But in both senses, Jesus isn't really saying that, is he? What he's saying is that salt is good for seasoning. He's using salt as a seasoning flavor, not as a cleansing flavor, not as a preservative flavor. The point of the illustration is not that Christians uh, are called to be all of these things, though perhaps they are. The point of the illustration is that salt, if it is to be useful, needs to have saltiness if it's to be enjoyed as a seasoning. We used some salt. My my children had uh, noodles, uh, elbow noodles for dinner with butter and salt. And elbow noodles are fine, you know, they're, they're, they're good, but you know, if you just have them, if you don't put cheese on them or whatever, you've got to flavor them. And really, butter and salt is just the best way to flavor elbow noodles. I don't know if you agree with me on that, but it's delicious. But if you were to take that salt and you were to sprinkle it all over those, those elbow noodles, and then you were to taste it, and the salt made the food gritty, but didn't make it salty... By the way, salt, when you season it, brings out the natural flavors, right, of whatever food it is. So if you want the natural flavors of the food to come out, you salt it, and it does an incredible job at actually heightening the natural flavors of the food. But if it doesn't, if it's lost its saltiness, then you know what? It's no good to me. 
Salt is actually a very stable chemical. It's prone to retain its seasoning, its savor. But when mixed, when lacking impurity, it can lose its saltiness. And Jesus says when salt loses its saltiness as a seasoning, it becomes useless. It's not fit for land. He says it's not even fit for the dunghill. It's fit only to be trodden underfoot if we compare with Matthew. And then Jesus finishes with this important call. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus says salt is good, but if you lose your seasoning, if you lose your savor, if you lose your saltiness, then wherewith shall you be salted? Well, how does this compare to what he's been saying? I believe Jesus is warning here against the person who has accepted Christ and who has counted the cost and who has said, you know what, I'm not willing to pay that cost. So I'm going to live this marginal Christian life. I'm going to skate through. I'm going to declare that Jesus is who he says he is. I have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, but then I am going to live my life as this lukewarm Christian. He says, you're, you're salt, but you're not good for anything to God. He can't use you because you're not yielded. He that hath ears, Jesus says, let him hear. We've seen this all throughout the Gospel of Luke, haven't we? Luke 6.27, Jesus says, But I say unto you which hear, love your, neighbor, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you. Luke 8.18, Jesus says, Take heed therefore how ye hear. For whosoever hath to him shall it be given, and whomsoever hath not from him shall be taken away even that which he seemeth to have. The whole point of the parable that Jesus gave here, he was giving the, the parable of the, of the, the seeds in the land, of, of the different soils, right? And at the end, he says, the point of this is be careful how you hear. He would then go on to say in verse 21 of Luke 8, my mother and my, uh, uh, excuse me, um, uh, a little bit of context here. Jesus is teaching and someone comes up and says, your mother and your brethren are without. And then Jesus says in Luke eight twenty eight, my mother and my brethren are those which hear the word of God and do it. Luke eight twenty one. We read, read about it in Luke nine thirty five. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son at the transfiguration. Hear him. When the woman blessed Jesus' mother, for her role in bearing Jesus. He said this in Luke eleven twenty eight. Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. And then Jesus says on this day, as he calls his followers, as he calls those who have recognized his identity to become true disciples, to bear the cross and to come after him, he says, if you have ears to hear this hard lesson about what it takes to follow me, hear me. So have you heard him today? Let me give you five points of application as we close. Point number one, the disciple of Christ places Christ above all priorities and loyalties. Listen, I hope you love your family deeply. I hope you do. I hope none of you loathe your family, have emotional hatred towards your family. It can happen in some families. Thank God that typically speaking in, in, uh, in our um, church, we, we don't have a lot of that. There are some difficult relationships, especially in some of our first generation Christians, right? I hope that life is enjoyable to you. 
I hope that you like your things and your job and your situation in life. But Jesus' warning is quite clear. If your love for the things of this world and your love for this world competes with your love for the things of Christ, then you're not where God wants you to be in your relationship with Him. Your salt is at risk of losing its savor. If you don't love Christ more than these, then you're not fulfilling the disciples' mandate. If you're not actively bearing the cross, which you have chosen to take up daily, right? You've taken up the mantle if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You've taken up the mantle. You have proclaimed, I am Christ, and I believe the gospel, but are you bearing that cross and coming after him? If not, you're not fulfilling the disciples' mandate. We talked this morning about doing what you've designed, what you've been designed for, right? We've talked about how fullness of joy in the Christian life comes when you are living out the design that God has made for you. And we said that the design for God in our lives is Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, to walk in the Spirit, and in doing so we shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That, in, that, 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 that when we abide in Christ, when we abide in the vine, we will have fullness of joy. The disciples' mandate is for you to take, to be willing to do what is necessary, to be willing to yield what is necessary, to be willing to count the cost, to be what Christ has designed you to be. And we mentioned this morning, there is a cost, because the world will tell you that you're missing out on all the fun, all the happiness, when you are yielding the distinctions of the world to follow the distinctions of Christ. There's a legitimate cost there. But what Christ calls us to see is that the value of following Christ is far greater than the value of the things which you are yielding. That the value of Christ is far greater than the value of your family or your job or your career or certainly the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. The question is not how much have you given to serve Christ. The question is not even really how much are you willing to give in service to Christ. The question is actually what aren't you willing to give in service to Christ? Can you pinpoint anything? Can we root it out? Because the very essence of discipleship is following Christ. And if there's anything standing in your way that will get between you and Christ so that he goes that way and you say, I can't go that way because there's this thing in my way. We need to get that thing out of the way. And this brings us to our second point. First, the disciple of Christ places Christ above all priorities and loyalties. Secondly, we aren't talking about moral perfection. We're talking about willing submission here. Jesus is not saying that the imperfect man is not his disciple. Jesus is not saying that if you are struggling with some area of loyalty in your life to something in this world, you are unusable. But when it comes to salvation by grace through faith, we know it's a simple gospel, right? You're in or you're out. You've either accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior or not. You're either a new creation or you're not. You're either born again or you're not. The disciple, the discipleship, however, is different, right? Discipleship is a journey. 
It is a daily process of sanctification, of growth, of daily submission. Some days may be better than others. Some areas of your life may be better than others. Some of you may struggle in areas that I do not. I may struggle in some areas that you may not as far as it goes. It is not that on any given day I have done everything that reflects that I am morally perfect and that I have made every single right choice as it comes to choosing Christ over the things of this world. But that is not the question. The disciple is not necessarily one who never falters in his affection. The disciple is one who never falters in his will. Let me explain what I mean. It is not the man who flawlessly balances priorities in his life with priorities in the next, though that should always be our goal, but rather the man whose heart and mind are determined to allow God to have first place and ready to yield when God asks. In other words, I, there are going to be times in all of our lives where we get selfish where we decide that we want to go our own way, where we decide that we are going to yield the distinctions of the disciple for a moment, for an hour, for a day, for a month, so that we can pursue our own ends. The disciple is not one who never falters. The disciple is one who will be willing enough, yielded enough to check his heart and to say regularly, where have I, where has something crept in? And then to, to, to root it out. It's not one who's never going to make mistakes. It's just one whose will is constantly desiring to readjust to Christ. My wife and I do this every once in a while. Every, perhaps every six months, certainly at least every six months, we'll go through and we will take a look at the toys that, we, that our children have and we'll take a look at uh, the clothes that they're wearing, you know, whatever decals are on the clothes, and we'll take a look at the books that may have found their way or the DVDs that may have found their way into our home and we will assess them and see if maybe somewhere along the line something slipped in that, didn't, that shouldn't, have, slept, that shouldn't have, have crept in, right? If somewhere along the line we allowed that toy... Uh, in that, you know, we've decided we're not going to go that route with our children and their toys. Or we've allowed that movie in, and you know what, that we, 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 we should not go that route. And so we reassess, we reevaluate, and then we cleanse. It's because we are imperfect people living in an imperfect world. There are things that are going to find their way in, whether it's through busyness, whether it's through distraction, or whether it's through weakness on our part at any given moment. The disciple is not one who doesn't have weaknesses or distractions, but the disciple is one who has a mindset that says, at least on uh, on uh, temporary occasion, ideally every day I am reassessing and reevaluating my priorities to make sure Jesus is at the top. As your pastor, I'm not trying to stand here and say that you need to live in a constant state of feeling like uh, you don't measure up to Christ's standard or, or calling you to performance benchmarks or calling you to perfection. I'm here telling you that all of those that are that, that those things that the performance that 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 the doing of the will of the Lord that comes as we yield our will to him. So the question is, is your will yielded? Is it all on the table so that when God says, get rid of that? So that when God says, go there, so that when God says, add that, you're listening and you're willing. The song says it best, channels only, blessed master, but with all thy wondrous power flowing through us, thou canst use us every day and every hour. Are you a good channel or is your channel clogged? We're coming into the fall season, which means I get to climb up on my roof on several occasions and clean gutters. Because those channels get clogged 
And if I don't unclog the channel, then when the rains come and the moisture comes and the precipitation comes, that the precipitation is not going to end up where it needs to be because the channels are clogged. Is there something clogging your channel? Is there something between you and Christ so that he is unable to use you? Point number three, the cost of discipleship is worth it and God will enable if you are willing. We live in a free market, generally speaking. And in a free market, generally speaking, there is an exchange of goods. You exchange your time for money. That's what a job is. And then you take that money and you exchange that money for goods. That's what commerce is. You assess the price of a good and then you exchange the the money that you have or perhaps a barter system. You exchange one thing for another. You have to count the cost of that good and decide whether or not the cost of that good is worth yielding. And generally speaking, when we use an item, the idea is that when we use the item, that we've used the item for a while or whatever the case may be, we can rightly say, yes, the amount that I exchanged for that item was worth the cost that I paid for it. What the Bible tells us is that discipleship comes at a cost. You will be yielding something in order to follow Christ. But what the Bible also tells us is that when you yield it, you will find that the price you paid is far worth it for the results that you'll receive. If you are willing, you may lose some things to follow Christ. When you put it on the table, you put it there knowing that Christ might pick it up. Family, lifestyle, dreams, hopes, job, priorities, entertainment, children, You place it on the table. God might pick it up. You might lose out on personal honor, on financial success, on certain relationships. But when you count the cost, it's worth it. Every time and in every way. But here's the thing. You have to believe that. Faith always precedes blessing. That means... You count the cost before you begin because if you don't count the cost, if you don't reckon it to be so, you know what? You're not going to do it. It's just that way. You're not going to do it. If you aren't willing to believe that it will be worth it, then your sin nature, everything, all of the things that are against you, you're not going to do it. And count the cost because once you start, God may ask. Let's consider a hard truth next. Number four. If you're not a willing Christian, Jesus tells us you're spiritually good for nothing. God has saved you for a purpose. You know, one of the things that I tell our parents at Legacy Baptist Church is that your job is not done when your child accepts Christ, right? A lot of people, uh, churches, even outside of just parents and children, uh, churches kind of get this idea. Uh, I I was talking to a pastor a while ago, and he was talking about how uh, since he had become the pastor of the church, they had baptized over a thousand people, he said, which is an amazing number, except their church was only about 250. So what happened to the rest of them? 
See, sometimes we can get this idea that, that, that the, the, the effort stops at salvation or at baptism. But that's the beginning, not the end. That's, that, that's where the work begins. Before that, it's just a matter of accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. You're in or you're out, but after you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's when the real work begins. That's when the, the, that, that's when the sanctifying process begins. That's when discipleship begins. That is when we begin to fulfill the mandate for which we are created in Christ. The Bible says that we are the elect, and that doesn't mean we've been elect unto salvation. Nowhere in the Bible does it say we've been elect to be saved. The Bible says that election is unto purpose. Which means when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and you become one of the elect, the fact that you're one of the elect means that God has something for you to do. You didn't fulfill all of God's joy the moment that you you came into the kingdom. You fulfill all of God's joy when you follow Him in His way. That's what you were called to do. That's what you've been saved to do. If God saved you just to save you, then He would have raptured you the moment you accepted Christ as Savior. But He keeps you here because you have work to do. And if you're not doing anything for Him... If you're not a willing Christian, if you are not following him, then Jesus says you are salt that has lost its savor and it's good for nothing. Christ has placed the spirit within you. He has freed you from the power of sin. He produces the fruit of the spirit within you. He saved you from the wrath that is to come. He has reserved for you a place in heaven. He has made you salt so that you can salt the earth. He has called you to serve Him. He has asked for your life to be a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto Him, which is, Paul says, your reasonable service. This is reasonable for one who has been redeemed from an eternity in hell. To willingly give to Christ as Christ has willingly given all for you. And He has promised that if you'll do so, you'll never regret it. And if you aren't Christ's disciple, I'm not saying if you're a believer or unbeliever. I'm saying if you aren't Christ's disciple, if you aren't actively yielding your will to Christ's will, if you aren't yielded to God's plan for you, again, you might not, not know what that is. I know, I'm not saying that you need to be perfect in this, but I'm saying if your will is not in a place where you say as you think, yes, I want God to have everything. Yes, I want to be a part of this process of discipleship. Yes, I am yielded to go where he wants me to go. Jesus warns you that your salt has lost its savor. And that is good for nothing. You are spiritually ineffective. You're not doing what you've been created to do. And so we ask one final question as we close. Do you, brethren, have ears to hear? Are you one of those that has ears to hear? I'm not saying, are you listening to my words? I'm not saying, can you dictate back to me any of my points? I'm not saying, can you tell me what the passage that we're, we're considering says? I'm saying, are you actually hearing what God is saying? Is it registering with you? Do you understand what Jesus is asking of you? Do you get it? Is this something that you are really understanding what Jesus is asking. Do you understand the cost? Do you understand what's at play? Do you understand his promise? Do you understand what he, 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 he has promised to give to those who will come after, after him? Excuse me. Have you reckoned yourself dead to sin, dead to this world, alive unto Christ? Not everyone listening today has ears to hear this. As a matter of fact, this message may only be for one person. 
There may only be one person listening who has ears to hear what is being said this evening. Maybe you're that person who the Holy Spirit is saying, give, 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 give. I came to this point and it wasn't until I was 19 years old. Oh, I wish it could have been when I was seven, eight, nine, ten. That I had ears to hear and that I said it's all on the table. But it wasn't until 19 that I finally said, okay, God, it's all on the table. And let me tell you the things he did. Magnificent. What do I regret? The only thing I regret is that it took till 19. I regret nothing else of, uh, of that. I've told you before, I have never regretted to whatever degree I have yielded to Christ. And I'm not the perfect example by any means. But to whatever degree I've yielded, I've never regretted it. The only thing I've ever regretted is when I've not. And that's what Jesus is saying. There's a cost. There are things to yield. There are things you have to put on the table. But you won't regret it. If you have ears to hear, are you one of Christ's disciples? Is the Holy Spirit telling you what that means? Has he placed his finger on something unyielded in your life? Again, it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to take it away, but is it on the table? Has he shown you a way or ways in which you're living unyielded? Are you ready to place your will at Christ's feet and go where he wants you to go? Are you ready to bear the cross, not just take up the mantle of Christ, but to bear the cross and come after him? Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray for God's people. I feel uh, that this message was particularly inadequate. I feel as though it did not come across properly. And yet, Lord, I'm thankful that though I am an imperfect mouthpiece for your word, that your Holy Spirit is a perfect teacher. And so I pray for God's people that as we consider this concept of discipleship, of bearing the cross, of following Christ, of counting the cost and reckoning it worth. I pray for God's people that they would have ears to hear. I pray for myself that I would have ears to hear. Search our hearts, Father, and may your Holy Spirit place its thumb on anything and everything in our life that is not yielded so that we may yield it unto you. May you be praised. May you be pleased with our response this evening. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.